0: I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha Podcast, where we discuss deep thematic points about the Parsha. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email me at podcast.matan.org.il. This Breshit series is titled, Chosenness and Choices. The Book of Breshit is propelled forward by God's chosen representatives, Adam, Cain perhaps, Noah, Abraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, but these messengers impact the world because of the choices they make, and it is a nexus between being chosen and the human choices that actualize this divine will in the world that we are exploring in these episodes. Today's conversation was recorded on the 14th of November. Parshat Vayishlach opens with the fraught encounter between Esav and Yaakov. Yaakov prepares for the worst, and in the midst of his preparations, experiences an unusual encounter which leaves him physically injured. Yaakov and Esav meet and avoid dangerous conflict, but they somewhat disappointingly part ways again. At the end of chapter 33, Yaakov gives Esav the impression that he will follow him back to Seir, but no such journey is ever undertaken. We get the sense that Yaakov is relieved to have established positive ties with Esav and wishes to leave things at that. The episode that follows, The Rape of Dinah, fills in gaps regarding the children's relationships. Each sub-family knows where its loyalties lie, the text emphasizing that only Dinah's full brothers come to her rescue. The episode is jarring, not only because of the physical violation of Dina, but because previous generations had gone to such lengths to avoid intermarriage with the locals. Why were the brothers and Yaakov not more watchful over Dina? Last year's episode on the rape of Dina with Rachel Sharansky-Danziger, episode 86, was chillingly insightful. I recommend going back and giving it a listen if you haven't heard it. The parsha continues with God calling Yaakov back to Beit El, giving him purpose of travel after being seized with fear that the Shemites might harm him in, in avenge of his son's behavior. When Yaakov fulfills God's commandment to travel and build an altar, his name is changed for a second time to Israel. Rachel tragically dies birthing Benjamin, completing the family tree in the saddest of ways. And finally, the Parsha lists the descendants of Esav and the kings and chiefs of Edom, all associated as Esav's descendants. This is the way the book of Rishit parts with Esav, as it did earlier with Ishmael. Esav will, will reappear in chapter 35 to bear Yitzchak, but we hear nothing else about him other than his establishment of the great kingdom of Edom. Today, I'm excited to be joined in conversation by a new guest, Rabbanit Sally Mayer, who serves as Rosh Midrasha at Oratora Stone's Midrash at Lindenbaum's Overseas Program, as well as teaching Talmud, Halacha, Parsha, and Jewish philosophy at the Midrashah. Sally, it's great to have you here.
1: Yes, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: In today's episode, what we really want to focus on is Yaakov's adult life Uh, in the flow of how these episodes have gone. We last left Yaakov uh, in Parshat Toldot where he stole the bracha from his brother Esav. We left them in that very fraught, tense moment. Uh, And then we did something different. We took a little bit of a journey and And looked at a song that really gave us a broad perspective on the book of Breshit, uh, and in that Parsha, as as I said there, right we have Yaakov's, i would say his earlier adult life, meeting his wife, uh, what happens in the house of Levan, and this Parsha really gets deep into the episodes that are I would even say the development, the continuation uh, of of who Yaakov is as an adult before we really move on to the next generation of his children. So that's sort of our topic of conversation today. And why don't you, you jump in there, wherever it feels right.
1: So I think that Vayishlach is a really, really interesting parsha because I think we see a lot of development and change in Yaakov from how he was as a younger man um, and now how he is as, as, a, as an older person, as a, as a father, as a husband, uh, and having had all of his experiences, I think we really see perhaps a new Yaakov in this week's parsha.
0: Okay, so which episode do you sort of want to look at first in order to see those changes?
1: I think we could even really just start with the very beginning of the Parsha. If we look at the beginning of the Parsha, Yaakov Yaakov takes initiative to go seek out a meeting with Asav. Um, Yaakov does not need to do that. Yaakov is on his way home, and he could have snuck in or... Just hoped that Asav wouldn't be there, right? Uh, in fact, it says that he Esav was in Adom and Yaakov was going back to Canaan, so he could have just avoided an encounter with Asaph But the parsha begins by saying that he sent messengers to Asaph and says and talks talks to Asaph as Adoni, as my master, and calls himself his servant, and you know, sort of wants to find favor in his eyes. Yaakov seems to be trying to make up with Asaph
0: I think also it's a great contrast with the way that he leaves both his parents' home and the house mm-hmm. of Lavan. Where there he he knows very well how to, how to sneak out, right, and sneak out and leave and run away. Absolutely. And here you see this, I would I imagine, very concerted effort to be upfront to seek out connection in a way that it, that it's. I think we could say it's been it's been difficult for Yaakov to do that. Uh, that he you know even even with his wife his wife Rachel he sort of fell upon her, right? Meaning he didn't, it wasn't this, you know, I went on a date, I put myself out there, I was vulnerable. <laughs> they, right. they met in a way that, and he was overtaken. It was like this, you know, sort of exotic moment. But here he's going out and seeking connection with his brother, which is a massive change.
1: Absolutely. And uh, and also dangerous, right? Meaning Yaakov, uh, the last time he saw Asaph, Asaph wanted to kill him. So now he's going out to try to try to meet with him, he doesn't know whether Asaph will accept that well or not. And in fact, he discovers that Asaph is coming to him with 400 men, which sounds a lot like Asaph wants to attack him. And that's how Yaakov uh, experiences it and assumes, well, you know, that's what he assumes will happen. So it was risky in a, in a brave and courageous and direct way, um, which, as you said, I think is, is different for Yaakov.
0: Something that also strikes me, In the message he receives back from the messengers, is that it says, "If we're again we're in Paraklemat Bet, chapter thirty-two, pasuk vav six, and and so we've we've gone to Esav, and you you guys sort of had had joint intentions, right? Mm -hmm. Meaning he's already coming towards you, Mm -hmm. so there's something here that also feels almost fortuitous, meaning you both had some sort of intention Mm -hmm. to meet each other." Um, but what what still disturbs me, and I feel like it's sort of like the older Yaakov still, still sort of coming up there, is that just that physical description immediately sends Yaakov into a panic. And I always think to myself, I mean, couldn't they have inquired about what his intentions were before? It, all he has is these facts. Now, it does. It, it seems very foreboding. It seems like a military attempt. I, I get what it looks like. But... But we, I always just wonder, like, why couldn't they have asked? And why didn't Yaakov say? Well, what did he say? What were his intentions? But immediately, And he immediately goes into a panic, and he divides them up into two camps. And and sort of, it's this very um, impulsive reaction. And I think that that's an important word. And it's certainly the beginning episodes, when it comes to Yaakov, and and i om- I almost feel like Chaval, right meaning Chaval, I mean, okay, everyone has a journey they have to go on, but what if they would have just inquired about Asov's intentions to begin with, and then maybe this wouldn't have unfolded that way?
1: That's really, really interesting what you're saying, uh because I think i i I identify with Yaakov in this. In, in in his reaction in the circumstance when he hears 400 men are coming, it doesn't seem like that's so necessary when you're just meeting your brother back again. So I, I and I, especially given the way that they parted so long ago. So I think that Yaakov has a lot of reason to think that. What you're suggesting maybe is that their ultimate meeting with the kisses and hugs, right, are, was actually what Asaph was planning all along. And maybe Yaakov really, misunderstood uh because
0: you're maybe you're maybe looking at it through like the eyes sort of of rashi here meaning that it was all the elements that placated asa meaning he intended to come and hurt and then he became softer
1: i guess that is that is how i see it not so much influenced by rashi but Mm -hmm. just influenced by the like, why are you bringing four hundred men yeah. to meet your brother? That just seems unnecessary. So, unless Asaph just always travels with an entourage, always travels with an entourage, I, I don't know. But yeah. I, I, I do wonder if the meaning, the way that I read the story, actually is that that Asaph did have bad intentions, mm-hmm. did have, did, did plan to attack Yaakov, but then was either placated or. Right, the uh, Hashem protects Yaakov, and and ultimately there's this uh, this meeting. But I think your your reading is also very interesting that maybe Yaakov misunderstood. I just would want to understand then what are the four hundred men for? Yeah,
0: no, I, it, it it looks ominous. I'm with right, you. It right. definitely looks ominous. Mm-hmm. But I guess I always assume that his reaction at the end was his intention in the beginning. But I think that that's a that's an interesting point of uh, of contrast. And in terms of sort of a an evolved Yaakov, how do you see that in, in the conversation that takes place between them when they meet?
1: Right, so I think that uh, that there's something really, really important uh, that is said, and this is actually an insight that my husband, Rabbi Etan Mayer, pointed out, uh, so I want to give him credit. Yaakov, when Yaakov and Esav are debating whether Esav should accept the gifts, so um, Yaakov says... He says, take my blessing. And I think that that doesn't just mean take the stuff I gave you. I think it may be that Yaakov is trying to say, I want to give back the bracha that I stole from you. Mm -hmm. Meaning Yaakov is sorry for having done that. Yaakov is trying to make up for that. I think that Yaakov is is trying to give back the bracha that he stole all those years ago and is trying to say to Asaf, like, I, I'm sorry that I took it from you. It wasn't, uh, and, and, and he's, not only is he sorry he took it from him, but I think that he realizes that he doesn't, he doesn't need that bracha. He's not, he, that's not what he's going for. And, uh, and he's trying to give it back, which is just a really, really interesting closure to that whole story. Um, in Toldot when he when he takes the bracha.
0: Yeah. And also the phrase li Kol, the phrase kol is always refers to the Birkat Avraham, right? So meaning all this all this plenty, right, that I have. Uh, he it, it, it all it reflects both because at least I'll go with the interpretation that we gave in parshat Toldot is that we have two different elements. We have the right we have the Bhora and we have yeah. Birkat Avraham. Mm-hmm. And so he is saying, Birkat Avraham I have Benachat, do you know what I'm saying? I, I received that from my father in an open way before I left the house. Um, but but the bracha itself of the bukhara is something that I wanna at least proverbially kind of return to you. Of course, there's a very significant piece regarding the bracha that happens in between the preparations for the meeting and the actual meeting, and that's in the confrontation with the Ish that he has before. And he, you know, turns to this again, man, perhaps Aesop's angel, perhaps God himself. Uh, and and he says in, in Pasuk Kaf Vav, we're in chapter 32, verse 26, um, when he says, Okay, so he, the, he says, he says, I'm not going to let you go anywhere until you, uh, until you give me a blessing, and this constant need for blessing, this constant need to feel reaffirmed, is something that you know follows Yaakov throughout throughout his life, really. But there is something again. I'm going to use the word evolved. Anyone who mm-hmm. knows my family listening to this knows that's a word we like. But uh, there's something just really changed and and mm-hmm. and matured almost about about Yaakov, right? Meaning he still needed it when he. We almost feel like in that confrontation with that God-like creature or God Himself he wants to receive what he took inappropriately and then when he when he does receive a certain kind of blessing or a change in name which is a question how that fulfills that but and then he meets asav and he says there's something almost calmed about yaakov that he received what he needed and now he can give back to asav what it is that really belonged to him
1: yeah, that's really, really interesting. I think that the this encounter with this Ish is very significant. Um, I'll mention two ways that I think it's very significant. Number one, Yaakov uh, wrestles with uh, with this man. Uh, and he's the one who he refuses to be underhanded uh, to reach below the belt, so to speak. Not even just so to speak, that's actually what the, the Ish does to uh, to Yaakov. And Yaakov used to be the guy who you know, used to be the person who uh, who was underhanded, who dressed up as his brother, who tricked uh, even, even the way that, that he had to deal with love on. And maybe you could say he had to deal with love in that way. There was no other way to deal with it. With him, but it was also uh, subterfuge and 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 being tricky and and as you mentioned earlier, how he he sneaks away and the Torah describes that as like he steals his heart, right? Which is not a not a positive way even from the Torah for the Torah to to describe it. He's he's his his whole method is very underhanded um, in the at the outset, uh, but he refuses to he refuses to fight in that way anymore, and so. It's it's actually the ish that uh, that that does that, and then uh, so so that's the first thing I think we see a real change in Yaakov, and that change is actually expressed in the change in name. Yaakov means to be tricky, mm-hmm. right? Akov Yaakov and Yashar a heel he'll grabber, heel grabber, and uh, vayakveni ze pamaim. Esav says about Yaakov, and and uh, and now he's Yisrael Yashar. He's straight, and so I think that that change in name is. Is uh, is is very powerful, but also very appropriate for this moment where he where he actually changes the way that he behaves. And I think that, that so it's really though it's it's those two things. It's the it's the 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 not being underhanded in the fight, and then the the change in name, which really comes I think as a re, as a result of that. Um, I think is the is is a significant uh, part of the story and a significant turning point in the evolution, as you say, of Yaakov.
0: As a compliment to that, I, I want to just read a quote from, uh, from Leon Cass's commentary on Breshit. He says the following. He says, in his striving with his brother Asa, Jacob must avoid being either Cain or Abel. In relation to his father, from whom he steals his brother's blessing, he must avoid being like Ham, a man who sees his father's nakedness and refuses to cover it up. He must, despite his artful nature, avoid the pride of the builders of Babel. He must, despite his erotic nature, which he brings in from the story of Rachel, who was the first person who really fell in love uh, with, a, with a woman in that way. We have Yitzhak who love, but he falls in love. Mm-hmm. Uh, he must, despite his erotic nature, acquire the proper attitude towards women, marriage, and procreation. He must, despite entanglements with foreign peoples, avoid the temptation of limitation, assimilation, and idolatry. And above all, precisely because of his enormous talents and self-reliance, he must avoid the all-too-human propensity to ignore or forget about God, to regard himself as his own self-sufficing source. Okay, we can agree or not agree with some of that. Obviously, his commentary is going to be much more human-based than Mm -hmm. God-based. But I just want to take even more of that last piece, right? About there's something about Yaakov, and this it really comes through in his commentary very deeply. He's incredibly self-reliant. He's that guy. He runs away from his house. He has nobody. You don't have a choice but to develop self-reliance. If if that's and but on at the on the flip side, because you become such an independent identity, you can have a hard time leaning into other people. You can have a hard time leaning into the, those who love you, you can have a hard time leaning into God when you need help, uh, and and I think that just as like a as a, a soul position, many people who are very self reliant, I think, do have a hard time just turning to God and saying, "Help me out here," you know. Like I, I don't because they're not used to that that space, and and when you bring out now about Yaakov, is is the fact that sometimes what it takes to change something that sits so deeply at the core of someone's being. Is, is nothing less dramatic than a name change, meaning the, how, how many ways can you express the fact that somebody's different, you know? And we know people who do that. I'll just, as a, I mean, it's funny. I mean, I I went by my English name. I didn't change my name. I just went by my Hebrew name. But of course it represents something different and it's a massive evolution in in who you are. And and I love that piece that we go from Yaakov, who's underhanded and, and tricky, right, to mm-hmm. Yisrael, and Israel is yashar meaning at least aspiring to be yashar and upfront about things and and in his confrontation with with Eisev, i think again he he does still a little bit of a combination because he makes it seem right like right. he's going to he's going to spend time with him he doesn't really want to but i also just say on a totally different note which is that i love that the book of besheet gives us it provides all these different models for sibling relationships sometimes for siblings for whom they're not going to find peace, it is better that they not live near each other. Right. They don't have to be at war. They don't have to have continuing competition. They certainly don't have to kill each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but an alternative to a fratricide situation might be living in different geographical locations.
1: Interesting. Picking up on what you said there, they do bury their father together, right? Yeah. Meaning it's maybe it's that model of siblings that can't live together, but for maybe family smachot, maybe family sad times, they can come together and work yeah. together. I want to pick up on something else you said, which because I, I find very interesting what you said about being self-reliant versus being able to rely on God. Perhaps the image of his limping at the end of this story is very much that vulnerability. He can't. He's not, he's not at his in, in top shape anymore, right? He's totally. He is actually vulnerable. And I think there's another thing uh, that indicates that in the original... Uh, part where he is expecting Asaf to come and attack him so he does does all these different things right he sends the gifts and he and he splits up his camp but he and he also prays and uh in that prayer he's so humble I'm reading uh, chapter 32 verse 10 I'm humbled by all of the kindnesses and all of the faithfulness that you've shown me uh because you, I left, I, I, I went over this same river uh, years ago when I was running away and terrified. All I had was my staff, and now I'm, I'm two camps. And I want to contrast that with, with the Yaakov at the time when he was running away, in Parshat Vayetze, where he has just that staff and he sleeps on some rocks right on the way and he has this amazing dream. And he wakes up from the dream, and here's young Yaakov, right? Like you said, so self-reliant. And he says, okay, Hashem, I'm going to make a deal with you. If you take care of me, and you watch over me, and you give me everything I need, then when I come back, I'll make this into a beta lokim, I'll make this into a house of God, and I'll give you 10% of everything. And Hashem must have thought, oh, that's so cute. You know, it's like when our kids... Cutting a deal with God. Yeah, cutting a deal with God, number one. Number two, it's like when our kids... Buy us a present using our money. Thank you so much. That's so sweet of you, right? It's so cute, and we do appreciate it, but in that like kind of that's adorable sort of way. So what what is Yaakov offering Hashem? It's he's coming from a from a perspective of I have what to offer, and now he's seen a little bit of life. He has kids, he has wives, uh, he has uh, right. He's seen. He's been tortured himself. Meaning, he's been he's been on the other end of somebody who's tricked him, and now he's saying, "Hashem, I have nothing to offer you. I just, I just really need your help." And that's a kind of vulnerability, also, that that fits in with what you were saying.
0: Yeah, I think that those are two really powerful points. Both the reflective in his in his tefillah to God. Uh, I also think that many of us that that's a very common journey: the journey from confident. I'm going to use the word cocky, but it's about mm. humans, not about Yaakov, right? Mm-hmm. Confident and cocky, young, and then life trains us, right? Life puts us in our place, and and I think that I think that all, I, I I often say to people that if people don't become more humble over time, then then there's something that isn't working on that journey, right? It's, Absolutely, life is supposed to do that to us, and and so I love that piece, and and I also I very much agree, and I will say that. Leon Cass in his commentary, he very much writes about the physical limping, also as sort of the. I wouldn't say it's not the slaying of Yaakov, but it's like the training of Yaakov to be someone who he no longer can be—just on the run, strong, fast, outmaneuver people. He's he's in a position where he needs help. So I think that those are really important, both in what he says and physically what what his life is reflecting at this point. Mm-hmm. So where else do you sort of see this evolution when it comes to Yaakov and Mr. Xparcha?
1: So I think that even in his, in that painful and difficult episode of the rape of Dina, which I know we're not going to get into that element of it, but in terms of Yaakov's reaction, uh, Yaakov, I would say that his children take the approach that he would have taken in the past. Mm. They trick Nice. Shem yeah. and the, and Hamor. and they say, okay, you know what, we can be right. They say bemirma, right? They yes. answered bemirma with trickiness, and they have a whole plot. We're going to have them do a brit milah and uh, circumcise themselves, and then when they're weak, we're going to attack them and we're going to take Dina And Yaakov is horrified by their approach. Right? Yaakov yeah. says, like, how could you do this? And uh, and and he later curses Shimon and Levi in his. Blessings, right? At the end of his life, he's angry with them for what they what they did, and it's not entirely clear what he what Yaakov was really thinking. in at the end of this, in other words, when his when his children answered for him, right, and made this whole thing, was he okay with that? He was planning to go along with the intermarriage plan. It's not so clear, to, at least to me, what Yaakov was actually thinking. But he certainly is unhappy with what what the brothers did. Um, and um and i think that that's also an indication of yakov's change his kids are doing what he what he might have done in the past but but he he's not happy about that
0: i, I mean again not to overly psychoanalyze but very often the things that our children do that anger us the most, unfortunately, are the things that they've taken most from us, absolutely. right? It's, that's, that's the bit, yeah, it's the annoying bit.
1: Painfully familiar uh, point. Annoyingly <laughs> annoying bit. Um, <laughs>
0: and I, I will say just to, I, I don't necessarily have a theory uh, about, about what Yaakov was planning on doing in that episode. It could be that he was choosing reticence to take his time to try and figure it out and then the brother sort of rushed right. to a different plan I don't know if we know what his plan would have been um, but the look the episode is also very much sort of Venn diagramly related to his relationship with his wives and what's children who you imagine he wouldn't have just let them right be, be taken right. if they would have right that there, there is what to say there and it's not it's not easy it's not an easy reflection on Yaakov and also the end of the episode right where where famously he he Chastises the sons uh, Shimon and Levi, and he uses the first person many, many times. Right? He says, uh "Right." He writes, "He says, 'Achar te in pasuka Lamid in in the thirtieth pasuk in chapter thirty-four. Achar te moti la visheni be yosheva aritz peknani u baprizi ve ani metemi spal ve nezfu alai ve hikuni ve nishmadati ani u vetiv.' Right? right. There is this. There's there's a sense there that it's it's hard. It's hard to read that we feel that Yaakov." you know, the focus here is very much on, on him. Now again, on one hand he's in charge of a very large household and I understand. On the other hand, there is there is suffering going on that we're concerned that it hasn't been accounted for. But I think that if anything, I think that point about the sons sort of picking up where what Yaakov would have done and him choosing to be reticent in this moment, which again we could we could debate whether we think the reticence was an appropriate response, but it certainly is a change response from what he would have done in the past.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's a, it's a really really interesting and important point.
0: And then after that he returns, right? He returns back to Betel. Uh, and I'm also curious, where in the continuation of the parsha you think that uh, we see sort of the evolution of Yaakov?
1: Towards the end of the parsha, when Yaakov actually comes back to Beit El, builds the altar that he had promised all those years ago when he when he was running away. So right after that, uh, it says in uh, in Perklamed He Hay, uh, starting in Pasuk Tet, uh, thirty-five nine. Ya Yaakov, uh, Hashem reveals Himself to Yaakov and changes His name. In addition to the Ish, the, that man that He fought with, who changed His name a little bit earlier in the parsha, Hashem changes His name and He says to Him in verse eleven. Um, he identifies Himself as Kel Shakai. and I think that connects back to. The scene with the wrestling with the man with the fighting with the man earlier in chapter thirty two where Yaakov kind of strangely asks for the person's for the man's name, and the man or the angel, whoever it was, says, "Why are you asking my name?" And perhaps the reason he was asking for the name is because he was looking for that term, Shakai, because that term is associated with the birkat Avraham, with the blessing that of of being the chosen nation. And in fact, in the next verse in thirty-five, twelve, it says, I'm going to give you the land. And so this is Yaakov finally hearing from Hashem that he is actually, he is the chosen brother, he is the one who's going to continue, even after all of this that's happened, Uh, and through the whole evolution, right, and Hashem affirms that his name is now Yisrael and not Yaakov anymore, affirming that, that evolution that you were just talking about.
0: I think it's also interesting to note that Yaakov has much fewer contacts with, with, uh, with God than Avraham does. Uh, he has five contacts with God and most are either indirect or limited or instructions to leave one place or another. Um, and, and so this, you know, Beit El is this place for him where he has that direct contact with God. And, uh, I think that, you know, we have sort of the, the precursor of this moment of the episode of fighting this man who clearly is much more more than a man but the need also from God's perspective that that's not enough of a name change meaning I sent my messenger but in order for this to be a real change for eternity I have to sort of deliver it myself Uh, and I think that there's something about about Yaakov where His relationship with God, again, we said before, maybe it's because of someone being on the run and this very independent personality, but there's something about his relationship with God that is a little bit more, it feels, I'm not talking about his prophetic level, but a little bit more tenuous, meaning he needs more sort of... He needs more affirmation from God, and he goes many, many more years. At least, again, just based on what's recorded in Sefer Bereishit. Of course, he could have had prophecies that are not recorded, but he goes many more years, sort of wandering and through a life that is full of a lot of struggle, without sort of the clarity of that. I think some of the the earlier avot had in their relationship with God. It was a much clearer kind of thing, and I think it's also just important to note before we then like move on in the next parsha to to his sons that Yaakov basically becomes the prototype for uh for someone who receives a tradition meaning Abraham is the creator of it and and Yitzchak is uh, sorry he's the founder of it and and Yitzchak obviously receives what he can from from Avraham but he was but he, but Yaakov was the first one who's really like born into the covenant and he's also not the firstborn. So he's sort of like a, he, he's wouldn't say he's farther removed, but he, we are, yes, getting to a place where we have to figure out how to transmit it. Not because my father was that, and I have that right in my, the front of my mind, but I'm already a generation removed. So it could be that his relationship with God somewhat reflects that. Um, but I just think it's important to note that the, the sort of the prototype of who Yaakov is in relation to the Avot is a very different kind of thing. Not just in the Midot, that will say, that Chazal emphasized, but also just in terms of what it what it means. And now he has to figure out how to pass that on, not to one or two sons, but to, but to 12, okay. you know, so it's just like a different enterprise.
1: Such an interesting point you're making, and it really makes me think of how Yaakov's experience is so much more similar to ours. We're not the creators, we're not the founders, we, yeah. we're the, we're, we've received this grand tradition. We experience galut, we experience uh, exile, we experience challenges, we've encountered the other, and, and it's sometimes very challenging in a way that, that Yitzchak certainly didn't, right? He's the olat mimah, he's the, uh, the, the sacrifice, so to speak, and he never leaves Israel, and, and we don't, right, and, and, and maybe even what you said about how... Jacob's contact with God is more limited, let's say, than Avraham's was. Mm-hmm. Also, reflects our experience. We need to see kashem. We don't always see, and we don't, and we certainly are not. We don't merit prophecy now, but maybe Yaakov is a good prototype for us as well.
0: I think that's very simply why we were called Bnei Yisrael, right? right? Or Bnei Yaakov. I think that he does become, there's something more relatable about the struggles of Yaakov. Again, not because we are the same, but there's something about the the prototype or the archetype of his life that is more similar to the the journeys that, right. that we go through.
1: Absolutely.
0: Sally, thank you so much for this conversation.
1: It was my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. <music>
0: I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.